Welcome to EI Dialogues, a series by Educational Initiatives, an organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policy makers, and education leaders, delving into the most urgent and important questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is hosted by Sridhar Rajgopalan. In this episode, we speak to Andreas Schleicher. Andreas is the Director for Education and Skills and Special Advisor on Education Policy to the Secretary General at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, in Paris. Andreas spearheaded the program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, in this role. So, you know, if we are honest, I think we are probably in in education where medicine was 100 years ago. I, I do believe that um, we should not make education less of an art, but we can make it more of a science. It feels like PISA is a kind of a, you know, massive randomized control trial because there are natural conditions and there are, you know, interventions. You get an absolutely fascinating impact of how you know, condition A with intervention B works, whereas a different place has condition A but intervention C. So actually there are some countries that have shown that the world is no longer divided between rich and well-educated and poor and, and well-educated nations. You know, we often see um, excellence and equity as two opposing ends on a spectrum. Uh, but they're really two sides of the same coin. In fact, you do not find a single high-performing education systems on PISA that is not also very, very good in ensuring inclusion and, and equity. In this conversation, Sridhar and Andreas discuss PISA and the role it plays in education and policy making. Andreas highlights how developing nations have improved greatly without excessive financial investment and how equity and excellence in education are two sides of the same coin. Sridhar and Andreas also speak about the need for a science of learning to help educators diagnose and address student challenges, just as doctors use the science of medicine to treat patients. Looking forward, Andreas charts a path for schools, parents and policymakers to strengthen education systems taking lessons from their experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello and welcome to EI Dialogues. My name is Sridhar Rajagopalan. I'm co-founder of Educational Initiatives and currently work as its Chief Learning Officer. Today, I'm extremely happy and honored to have with us Mr. Andreas Schleicher. Andreas is Director for Education and Skills at OECD. He is also a Special Advisor on Education Policy to its Secretary General. Andreas is best known for initiating the well-known PISA International Assessments. PISA stands for Program for International Student Assessment. It's probably the foremost student assessment program globally. It's conducted once every three years and over 70 countries and regions around the world participate in each round. India participated in PISA in 2010 and will be doing so in 2022 again. PISA and Andreas have been an extremely influential force in education policy over the last decade or two. Uh, I was quite amused to know that a former British education minister called him the most important man in English education. 
even though he's German and lives in France. Anders is also the author of a 2018 book, World Class, How to Build a 21st Century Education System, which I will link from the show notes. I would say that this book should be on the top of the reading list for anyone who is working to improve education at scale. This book is freely downloadable from OECD's website. I've also personally had the pleasure of having a long conversation with Andreas uh, two or three years ago when we were in Gujarat and uh, attended a conversation at uh, Kivadia Colony, the site of the Sardar Patel statue. We spoke in length about the insights about PISA, the need for high quality assessments, and other points that I hope to touch upon today as well. Uh, a great pleasure to have you. Welcome to the show, Andreas. Very, very happy to have you here. Thanks so much for hosting me, Sita. So, Andreas, I'm going to jump straight in and uh, I want to understand a bit about your background. One of my informal observations is that a lot of people who have had a significant impact in education have actually come from outside the field. I mean, one name that comes to my mind is Maria Montessori, you know, who was a doctor and has a huge impact on uh, what we do in terms of education, especially for younger children. You too did not come from a formal educational background. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how the idea of PISA came up? Well, you know, I studied science actually and uh, physics. I had my first job in um, uh, medical industry and um, it looks a far stretch from education, but actually, you know, I, I, I do believe that um, we should not make education less of an art, but we can make it more of a science. We can make education uh, more predictable, more scalable, to sort of get a bit, uh, better common shared understanding of good education practice. That's always been sort of my my uh, my mission, my my idea for, for education. Uh, but I came actually into education through an accident, actually. In Germany at that time, we had to do sort of either mil military service or civil service. And I opted for the civil service, and they sent me to a school with disadvantaged children and actually... It was a very inspiring experience for me, and <clears throat> I changed my career. I actually said, well, I'm, I want to go into education work, and I think this is where I can make a difference, and uh, that's how I ended up there. <clears throat> and how did PISA start? I think that's another fascinating story. Yeah, actually, you know, when I entered the OECD, uh, I attended uh, my first meeting of education ministers, and uh, it was quite intriguing to me that you had ministers from different countries sitting around a table, and everyone was telling each other, you know, we have got the world's best education system, and if we have a little problem left, you know, last year we put a reform in place to uh, to solve that problem. There was actually no real dialogue among policymakers. There was no willingness to open up, you know, can I learn from you, with you, from different education experience. So uh, coming out of that meeting, really, I, I thought, you know, we need to do this differently. We need to create a shared platform that we can see each other, a kind of mirror where we can uh, look at ourselves in the light of what happens elsewhere in the world. And that's really the origin of PISA. Then it took you know many years to, to build it. And in fact, when we started, we had uh, zero money for this. It's actually something that was not you know projected in the work program or in the budget. It was just an idea. And um, <clears throat> but actually maybe that became the secret of the success. You know, if we had had a lot of resources for this, probably we would have hired an army of engineers to build an assessment, then you know, put it around the world. 
But actually, like this, without resources, we had to build a really good network of expertise from around the world. So in every country that you know had an interest in this, we looked for the best uh, researchers, the best educators, and said, "Well, you know, can you help us? You know, look at what young people need to do to be successful. How can we measure it?" And then that network really <clears throat> became the kind of source of of the PISA, and it is still today. PISA is very much you know, an enterprise that uh, links to the expertise on the ground. Uh, my, our role at the OECD is really just about to coordinate that. You know? And uh, so that's really, I think, the, the, the history. But the idea really was to create a, a kind of mirror. You know, Education is a very inward-looking business. Sometimes as a teacher, you don't look outside your classroom. Sometimes as a school, you do not know what's happening in the school just across the street. And... Uh, Education systems certainly don't have a strong tradition to learn from and with each other. No, absolutely. And some of the things you said kind of really resonate with me. I mean, the one point about everybody believing that their education system is doing fine. And I, I, we've had, you know, leaders repeatedly telling us that, yes, there were problems till I took over. But in the last three years, even that has been fixed and everything is going to be great. The other idea, of course, is this whole point about you know, a more scientific approach. Uh, I really like the phrase, you know, not less of an art, but more of a science. Uh, this is something that resonates a lot with, with what we do. And we use the term science of learning to refer to a very systematic study of how students learn. And I'm, I'm explaining it because there are different ways the term is used. In our case, we kind of diagnose what errors children make in different subjects. Uh, have very systematic assessments to try and diagnose those and then similarly have remediations uh, of these. And uh, there's this interesting book by Lewis Thomas, who was a doctor who in the 1970s called Medicine, the Youngest Science. And, uh, you know, it's talked about how from the 1930s, really, the science of medicine developed. And sometimes we believe that, you know, there is space for a science of education in that way today. And if that were to happen, you know, something like PISA where you're kind of looking at things systematically and, and, and trying to gain insights is uh, something that would really play a role. Is that the, the contribution that you see uh, PISA uh, doing? How do you see PISA contributing towards this more scientific dialogue or a shared understanding that you, you spoke about? Yeah, I would very much hope so. You know, if we are honest, I think we are probably in in education where medicine was 100 years ago. You know, we are just beginning to understand. We are just beginning to take learning as more than an experience. And we are just beginning to see where neuroscience is emerging, where we understand, you know, how the how the brain learns. I think we can actually uh, measure skills. PISA is sort of one, one example for this. I think we're just at the very beginning. I also think in terms of our mentality, you know, when I worked in the medical industry, you take that approach that uh, you need to prove what works before you actually apply it. You know, when you uh, research, you know, um, a medicament, you try it out very, very carefully before you put it out in practice. In education, we don't have that tradition. You know, here's an idea, let's try. And then, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't, we often forget about it. We try something else rather than to study, you know, why it didn't work. Uh, the other part that really I've, <clears throat> I think we can learn from other sectors is that many educational practitioners don't see their work as something that can be transformed by science. You know, they've grown up in a particular, you know, uh, tradition with a particular pedagogical set of beliefs, and they perfect them. 
but uh, as a scientist, you continue to learn, you continue to unlearn, and you're always open to relearn when the context changes. And I, I, I sometimes think we miss that in education. And, you know, uh, PISA has <coughs> confronted us with many puzzles. Uh, often we think, oh, you just put more money into education, it's going to make things better. It's not so simple. Often a lot more about how you make those spending choices, you know, the quality of teaching, whether the size of a class and so on. Um, so I think <coughs> that is really important to create more of a mindset that uh, educators don't just become those who transmit knowledge, but uh, also take ownership of their profession, you know, research their profession every day, you know, seeing yourself as a teacher, as someone who should contribute to the science of education. Now, that's something uh, medical doctors all do clinical trials. They're all involved in their profession. They take ownership of this. They don't have a ministry of health that writes a curriculum for doctors. No, actually, that's your job as a profession. I hope that, you know, uh, PISA can provide a few tools to foster that kind of attitude. No, again, uh, fascinating ideas. Another example that I take in a similar case is, you know, if I am a lung doctor and I see a patient, it's like very common for me to then refer to a document. There are books available which you literally have thousands of pages. I look it up and then, you know, find out what I should do in this case. Uh, whereas if I'm a teacher and I say, how do I teach algebra to children and solve this kind of a problem? I would often struggle to get that information and it's not common practice. So completely kind of resonate with, with that. When I read the book, uh, you know, World Class, uh, the book that you've written, it's absolutely fascinating. It feels like PISA is a kind of a, you know, massive randomized control trial because there are natural conditions and there are, you know, interventions, not for the purpose of study because but different governments are trying different things. So there are interventions happening. And then when someone, someone like PISA comes along and analyzes them, you get an absolutely fascinating impact of how you know, condition A with intervention B works, whereas a different place has condition A, but intervention C. And, you know, you get these amazing uh, insights. We'll talk about a few of them, but would you like, to, and you kind of just referred briefly to, you know, the spending on education. But I just wanted you to pick, you know, one or two of what you felt have been like very powerful insights for you and, and just talk about them or what you feel has been a big learning from the results of PISA. Yeah, you know, as you say, you know, the world is an amazing laboratory. You know, we can look at different educational experiences, how they play out in different contexts and with, with what, what success. For me, the most striking feature is actually at the surface, education systems look so different. But when you actually study uh, what makes education successful, you find so many commonalities, you know, the clarity of educational aspirations uh, not just to walk through textbooks but to be really clear what it, what what a good education is like you know? the capacity of education systems to attract the most talented teachers to the most challenging classrooms to uh, have a really inclusive approach to to learning um, I think there's so many features that we can see that time, you know, time investment is important, but it's not everything. You can see a country like the United Arab Emirates, uh, where students learn close to 60 hours per week, uh, when you count both in and out school learning experience, and you contrast that with Finland or Estonia, where this is just a little bit more than half of that time. But then you see in, in Finland, students learn a lot in very little time, whereas in the United Arab Emirates, they spend a lot of time and learn very little. So suddenly you understand it's actually how we use that time 
uh, how we uh, raise the quality of teaching and uh, the quality of education in the highest performing systems is very much framed by a profession that has a high uh, status in society, that is very selective, uh, that is very inquiry oriented and has a strong kind of collaborative culture. So I think there are many things that you can see education systems in very different cultural contexts actually share, but often the language we use and the way those phenomena express themselves are so different that we do not make those connections unless we have really good data. No? Absolutely. Very, very, very nice. Very interesting. Uh, and uh, just to be fair, because I'm sure that among our listeners would be people who have questions about PISA. So one of the intuitive criticisms about PISA that uh, one of the intuitive criticisms about PISA that we hear a lot and we hear this in India. India, remember, is not a country which has done PISA or any kind of international assessments that much. We've participated once before, still not very widely uh, known. And a very kind of intuitive criticism is that how is it fair to compare a country like India, which is a lower middle income country with, and again, I just use the stereotype, you know, rich Western countries and come to any conclusions. You know, that would not be a fair comparison. Uh, another criticism, maybe I'll mention both of these and let you respond to both, which is a more modern kind of a criticism, is that PISA is leading to a kind of an education arms race. And the, the, the challenge there is that, you know, countries will try to do anything just to appear to be performing well on PISA. How would you respond to these two uh, criticisms? Yeah, you know, I think the question of fairness is, is really relevant. Uh, but if you look at this closely, you know, that's what happens in education every day. You know, if you have two students in a classroom, one from a wealthy family, one from a poor family, uh, you put them on a level playing field. And that certainly, you know, should encourage you to redouble your efforts for the student from the disadvantaged background. But it is perhaps not fair in that traditional sense. And I think this, I, I acknowledge this, it's also true in uh, when comparing education systems but we live in one world so if one country you know is more advanced in its education systems it will have a natural advantage and if, if a country you know comes out not so well it needs to redouble its investment in the future and there are some great successes if you look actually to uh, to uh, south korea you know it used to be one of the poorest nations in the world one of the least developed education systems and you could see actually through investing in better education, it transformed the society. So actually, there are some countries that have shown that the world is no longer divided between rich and well-educated and poor and, and badly educated nations. So I think it is maybe not fair, but it's actually quite relevant. Let me add one more facet to this, and I think that's also important. The first country beyond the OECD membership taking part in PISA was Brazil. You know, and when they called me one day, the presidential office, we want to take part in PISA, I was very surprised. You know, I had exactly that same reaction like you. Well, you know, they're not going to come out particularly well on this assessment. And um, I asked that question and they told me, well, you know, we're not stupid. We know where we are. But actually, everyone in our education systems, in our society thinks, you know, schools are fine. Everybody goes to school. Uh, there's no, nothing, no extra effort we need to make as a student, as a family, as a teacher, as an education system. Then the results come out, you know, confronting people in very different realities with, you know, what the best performing education systems achieve worldwide. 
And, you know, within a year, Brazil doubled its investment in education. It was a wake-up call. You know, yeah, you know, we are poor. We don't have the same possibilities. But, you know, we are competent in a, in a kind of global marketplace. And we need to invest in our people to advance our future. So, yeah, I, th I think the question of fairness is, 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 is uh, uh, warranted. But comparisons are certainly relevant. That's really, I think, my point. On the on the arms race, you know, I'm less less worried about this. Uh, PISA is has no stakes for the individual student or the school. In fact, we designed it very carefully like that. We never give students or schools their individual results. We, we, we make nothing that actually you know suggests that schools are, because we want to actually assess how students respond in a realistic setting. You know, in a high-stakes setting, you do your best. You try very hard as a student, as a school, as an education system. In the PISA setting, there's no consequence for students. So we see actually what they can produce under realistic uh, context. And the same for schools and uh, the same for systems. And uh, in that sense, I'm not worried. Uh, what I do believe, however, is that, you know, rather than an arms race, that there's so much that we can learn from and with each other in the field of education. And so little of this. You know, I think also we can share across the world so much better our insights, our tools, our resources than we currently do. In a way, you know, probably, you know, for most countries and take the countries in the rich world, the education outside our borders may matter more for our future than the education inside our bodies, uh, borders. Now, I think we really have an interconnected world where uh, I think uh, we should do more to, to share our insights, resources, and yeah, I think uh, also learn how we can do things differently. No, uh, very, very nicely put. I think the point that uh, on the first point, you know, where you clarified that it's not as if uh, it's the, the richer countries that are always doing better. And you mentioned the example of Brazil. I'm going to ask you something more later about you know other examples of such improvements. So you're saying that it's not really true that it's the rich countries that have done well. It's more about how you use the money, how you plan the, the, the education policy and, and changes. And uh, PISA kind of shows that. And also on the, the education arms race that you know, it's not about a race, but more about how we can learn from each other and, and use that to improve learning. Because as you said, we are in a connected world. So uh, amazing and I think absolutely true. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the investment and spending on education explains something, but actually a lot less than you might consider. You know, some of the world's most advanced education systems actually are quite, still quite modest. They're, you know, now investing in their future because our schools today will be our economy tomorrow. But I think we can change the world through better education. And that's exactly what you, what you can see. Uh, and the reverse as well. You know, take the United States. It used to be the world's most advanced education systems. Uh, and and uh, actually today, it's just an average performer. Not it because, because it got worse, but because so many other countries actually did better and got better. Uh, so that's also important that success is never forever. It's never automatic. Yes, yes. I mean, so education is already a tough problem, but it's not it's not about just throwing money at the problem. One has to think through, learn from others and plan the intervention so that we get the goals we want. Absolutely. Two things that, you know, I have really liked from uh, conversations with you and talks of yours that I've heard you know, one was this point about equity and excellence where you, know, you said this and I know that in countries like India, 
you know, we face this because we have this situation where on the one hand, we have a few percentage at the top doing really well. I think we have in the news recently that the new CEO of Twitter is an Indian. And so it's a, a list of some seven or eight technology companies, high-tech companies, which are headed by Indian CEOs. On the other hand, we have about 60 to 70% of children of the country, which is a huge number falling behind, who are not learning at their grade level in language or, or mathematics, according to multiple studies. So uh, in at an Indian policymaking level and at the states, there is always this kind of a divide between equity and excellence. And yet PISA seems to show that it's not really a choice and the countries that actually do well on one uh, do well on the other. Can you tell us a bit about that and, uh, you know, why you think this may be the case? Yeah, you know, we often see um, excellence and equity as two opposing ends on a spectrum. Uh, but they're really two sides of the same coin. In fact, you do not find a single high-performing education systems on PISA that is not also very, very good in ensuring inclusion and, and equity. Uh, that's really was one of the most kind of revealing insights from the PISA assessments. Whether you look in East Asia or Northern Europe or North America, actually it's always the education systems that focus on inclusion that actually also achieve excellence. And um, some of that is actually not so hard on, to understand. You know, if you come from a wealthy background, you're always going to find open doors in life. You know, even if you don't do so well in school, you know, you, you find a future for yourself. If you come from a disadvantaged background, you have just one card to play in your life. And that is, you know, find a great teacher and a good school. You know, you miss that boat. Realistically, there are not many ways to catch up. So actually, education systems that attract the most talented teachers to the most challenging classrooms, to get, you know, the brightest principles for the toughest schools, they are the ones who leverage most improvement. And that's exactly what many education systems have done. If you look to the success of Vietnam on PISA, for example, basically, you know, what they have done, they didn't have massive capacity in the system, but you know, they, they, they looked, you know, for the best uh, teachers in the school and said, look, you know, can't you help uh, those schools who are struggling? And then you made the career elevator. But I also think there's one, one thing more to this, and that is the mindset of inclusion. If you say, you know, often we have this traditional education, okay, we have, you know, 10% of students with special needs, we need to do something extra for them, but the rest we can treat all in the same way. And that is the problem of our education systems, the, the most fundamental problems that which, which we struggle. If you look at education systems that really do well, you know, they say we don't have 10% of students with special needs. We have 100% of students with special needs. We understand how different students learn differently and embrace that diversity with differentiated practice. As a teacher, you can't say, okay, you know, I have this 10% that I, you know, not responsible for. No, you need to find answers for the learning needs of every student. And the education system gives you the resources, the support to do that. And when you do that, you know, you achieve the greatest levels of excellence because, you know, excellence is always a function of the pool on, on which you can draw. So I, I think that's something, it's a, it's a systemic question, but it's also a mindset question. To what extent do we see inclusion as the source of excellence rather than, you know, mediocrity? That's sort of the other side of it. If I, you know, focus on equity, I end up with a kind of very mediocre average. That is true if you have a one-size-fits-all approach to this. But if you actually understand the different 
learning needs of different students, you can build uh, uh, excellence through equity. And that's really what we see across, uh, across the yeah. world. Yeah, I think what has happened in countries like India is that we believe in equity on inputs, you know, as opposed to what you are saying, which is equity on outcomes and giving the best teachers. So we ensure that they have a school and therefore they reach school and we are at, you know, 100% of schooling. And I know that many other countries are here too, but the children don't learn in school. So what we really need is equity on outcomes, which means very difficult policies that ensure that, like you said, the best teachers are able to address the, uh, the children with the, with the greatest needs. Personalizing, I, I loved your phrase about 100% of children have special needs. So I think that's, that's the challenge for uh, India and other countries like that. Yeah, you know, I think the interesting uh, point here is that to achieve equity, you need a deliberate, inequitable approach to resources and inputs. Now, you need to think about what are the learning needs? What resources do we need to deploy? How do we configure space, time, people, and technology to serve those different needs? And uh, some countries have really interesting approaches to this. Now, the formula-based funding has become quite popular, where actually the resources that a school gets depend on you know, its geography, its student intake, its kind of socioeconomic context. Sometimes schools themselves, you know, are the designers of those kinds of approaches. I think uh, that is really the trick. If you have, if you focus on equity on inputs, you're almost guaranteed to get inequality in outcomes. Uh, I also find PISA analysis very inspiring, you know, because it, uh, for example, the Finland example that is mentioned, you know, which is that only 5% of the performance of uh, Finland is kind of due to variation across schools, which literally means that, uh, again, I think something which has been mentioned, which is that the best school is literally the, the school closest to you. Uh, and it's very obvious that other countries have not managed it. So you have other countries where 50% of the difference is explained by the difference between schools. And this is something we have seen in India. So you know, we completely recognize the system of, you know, a school for the excellent, a school for the next, a school for the next, you know, you would have a highly stratified system. But to me, it's inspiring that, uh, you know, though this is a challenge for everybody, there are countries, in this case, Finland, I think some others, which have achieved this, and which is a, a message that, you know, others can do it too. It isn't rocket science, it isn't uh, culture. Uh, 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 and so there are, there are, in that sense, it's it's an it's an inspiration and a kind of a path saying others have done it, you can do it too. Uh, do you also see it that way? Absolutely, and you know it's also something that uh, where we shouldn't underestimate the importance. You also should never underestimate the centrifugal forces in education. The moment you open up disparities between schools, they will become re self-reinforcing. You know, parents will figure out what is a not so great school, particularly those parents from wealthy backgrounds and avoid those schools. And then those disparities become bigger and bigger. And one day you can no longer bridge them. So actually it is very important for an education system to be sensitive to the variation in school performance. And that means having schools with a mindset and mentality to be outward looking. You know, uh, you mentioned Finland, where the closest school is always the, the, the best school, really. And uh, it doesn't come by accident. You know, if you are a school principal, a school leader in, in Finland, you'll spend two thirds of your time in your school, leading your school, but you send, spend one third of your time in a municipality where you actually work with t uh, school leaders from other uh, schools on designing the policies that keeps the system coherent. So there's a kind of uh, sharing of experiences 
teachers are connected within a profession. They know their colleagues from other schools. They always, you know, work and learn uh, together. There's a high degree of professional autonomy, but a very strong collaborative culture. And that's how uh, the equality is created between schools. And when, you know, school choice no longer matters because the school around you is always the best one, you relieve all of those pressures on parents. You avoid the kind of social disparities that we create. And suddenly you have a chance actually to advance the education system. So it's really about, you know, transparency. It's about uh, what I would call professional ac accountability. It's not, you know, government, you know, necessarily doing a lot of monitoring, but the profession understands, you know, its relative position and, uh, and acts on that. Right. I wanted to ask you about something which is an area that we have kind of worked a lot and treated and considered a very important problem in India, which is rote learning. Now, rote learning, of course, is a very commonly used term. I find that most countries and many educators complain about it. But uh, I, I, I can see that, you know, different uh, people are probably referring to different levels of rote learning. There was a study recently which showed that South Asia, you know, the school leaving exams in South Asia have probably some of the highest levels of rote and that is of great concern in uh, countries like India and Pakistan. So, of course, we also clarify that rote learning is not about memorization, but about, you know, trying to remember something uh, or remember a procedure or answer a certain type of question without necessarily understanding what you're doing. And so, uh, like the Indian system, systems that are tend to be rote heavy will often have, you know, a lot of questions from the textbook, definitions from the textbook. So, you're not really learning, you're being prepared for a small set of question types. Uh, so in, in India, we have felt that unless we break this, we cannot do well in terms of student learning or do well in PISA, which I would see as a consequence of that. And to some extent, the school leaving exams are the ones that set this because they are the goalpost. And if they are kind of based on a narrower approach, uh, then that is a challenge. Uh, have is this an experience that you have uh, found elsewhere that the nature of the school exam may be kind of increasing rote learning and, and cases where this has been addressed? Yeah, you know, exams are always very powerful forces. They deeply influence student behavior, parental behavior, teacher behavior. So we should uh, be, be aware of, of, of those forces. We can use them for good, you know, when the exam broadens your mind, or we can use them for bad when the exam narrows your mind. And uh, I, I would say, you know, uh, maybe a thousand years ago, we did a lot better on this. You know, we learned through apprenticeship. We always learned uh, with people and uh, worked on real problems. Assessment was integrated in what we did. When you made a mistake, you learned from that mistake. So assessment and learning were one. And then when education got, you know, industrialized, we divorced the two. You know, we said to people, you know, okay, you know, going to pile up lots of, lots of, lots of knowledge for many years. And then one day we ask you to come back and, you know, tell me everything you know in a very contrived, constrained, artificial, standardized setting. And then that, you know, has a huge influence, backwash effect up to the early years, early childhood education. So, yeah, I think exams are very powerful uh, forces. Um, uh, in a way, you know, Education knows how to educate second-class robots, you know, people who are very good at repeating what you tell them. But, you know, what makes us human at a time when the kind of things that are easy to teach and test have also become easy to digitize, to automate. In fact, you know, that was my first experience with PISA in India. 
uh, when the results came out in 2010, there were many people unhappy with them. And they said, oh, maybe we didn't draw the sample of schools well and uh, they, they prepared the students. Uh, none of these things were really the deciding factor. The deciding factor was that students had <clears throat> piled up lots of content knowledge in science, for example. They knew everything in physics and chemistry, but they had difficulties to demonstrate they could think like a scientist, you know, design an experiment, distinguish questions that are scientifically investigable from those that are not. And that's what the PISA test is really about. The PISA test does not reward rote learning. It really rewards the thinking skills. Can you think like a mathematician? Not, you know, can you calculate an exponential function? But do you understand the idea, the nature of that exponential function, what it means? you know, in, in nature, in society. And uh, that's really the, uh, can you <clears throat> think like an historian? You know, history is not about, you know, names and places. But again, do you understand how the narrative of a society has emerged, how it developed, how it advanced, and sometimes how it unravels when the context changes? Those ways of thinking are at the heart of Pisa. And we could see in the two Indian states, uh, uh, Tamil Nadu and Himal Pradesh, that actually students were, were lacking that. And, um, uh, I, you know, in the future, I want to go further with PISA on this, you know, I would like, you know, what we often do is in assessment, we put people in a very artificial setting. We say, you can't look at your neighbor. You can't look outside. You can't look up in your textbook. I have exactly the opposite attitude. I would like to give students access to the internet, to whatever they like. You know, I don't want to test whether they can memorize what they can find somewhere. I want to test, can they make sense of that world? Can they navigate ambiguity? Can they integrate sources of information in a meaningful way? Now, I think <clears throat> that's really, I think, the biggest challenge of our times. Now, once again, the kind of things that are easy to teach are now easy to digitize and, and automate. We need to think how we can complement, not substitute the artificial intelligence we create in our computers. Yeah. No, and this really leads me to the next question because one of the things that has also been fascinating about PISA is how you have introduced new subjects, new assessments, and I think done exactly what you mentioned, which is, okay, I need people to work collaboratively. I need them to be creative. I need, uh, you know, maybe even for them to be ethical workers. But can I develop assessments that, that, that measure this? So can you tell us a bit about these new assessments that PISA has been using and what are you finding in terms of children and countries on skills like collaborative problem solving and what are the other, these, these new skills that I think we need new assessments for gradually? You know, it's actually a lot easier than what people typically think. One of the reasons we find it so hard to assess, you know, creativity or collaboration or social emotional skills is because we are blinded by this view that assessment is about a multiple choice test. The moment you give that notion up, you actually find it's not so difficult. You know, someone once came to me, I wanted to build an assessment for the early years in, in childhood of social emotional skills. Someone was very skeptical, said, you know, if you can show me that you can test empathy among five-year-olds, I'm gonna give you a lot of resources. Basically believing that's just a totally impossible task. But when you think about it, you know, you can expose children to a story and you see how they react. You can code that. And actually, we ended up building more reliable assessments of empathy than assessments of science. Uh, so actually, I think, same for collaborative problem solving. You know, you can see to what extent students can, uh, you know, work together to solve a problem. Can they identify the nature of the problem? You can give them different parts of the solution. Can they share their uh, respective knowledge to solve that problem? 
<coughs> and so on. The difficulty often arises, and that was a really interesting learning for me, is that <coughs> you produce that result, for example, collaborative problem solving, and then educators come back to you and say, so interesting, but you know, I don't teach collaboration, so what does it mean for me? Uh, I think we are, have a very compartmentalized view on, on education, and it's actually really hard creativity uh, to, to relate back to, to, the, to, to the daily work of, of, of educators. That's where we found the greatest barrier. So uh, just to make this practical, when our assessments of mathematics and science get published, uh, everybody's going to look at those results. When we publish the results on collaborative problem solving, People took it more like a footnote, even though you know we know probably in life it's more decisive than, than anything else. I think we have to find better ways to translate those observations into our actions. We have to better integrate the cognitive, the social and emotional aspects of learning to create a more holistic uh, view on the, on the learning experiences so that teachers feel greater ownership. If you teach you know, sports, this is not just about making your students more athletic. It's also about, you know, giving them a sense of, you know, responsibility for themselves, responsibility for others to develop courage, to develop leadership. And I think we have to be more intentional about those aspects so that uh, and uh, uh, teachers who teach di different subjects uh, can collaborate much better on project-based learning environments. And then the, the moment you do this, your students start to see the world through different lenses and perspectives. They can sort of look at problems through different disciplinary lenses. So I think the, the outcomes there are very positive. So the problem is not so much the assessment part. The difficulty is really, you know, bringing that back into an education system that has, you know, almost firewall disciplines in its culture. And, and I think you mentioned that, you know, collaborative problem solving was not something that too many countries did well in, partly because the system does focus on you know, individual children learning individually, writing assessments individually. So like you are saying, it's also about changing how we look at education and being more intentional about developing these skills. Yeah, you know, there's a very interesting example. Um, you look at um, uh, China and Japan, when you look at individual problem solving, both come out very, very well on that. When you look at collaborative problem solving, the Japanese did even better on that and the Chinese did quite poorly on that. And then, you know, some people say it's culture. It's actually not culture. It's actually very much to do with the education system. If you go to a Japanese school, it's all about the common experience. You know, as a student, you know, your stronger students have the weaker students. Uh, the evaluation of the class is what really matters, not just the individual performance. The Chinese system is very competitive. So actually, the way we frame educational experiences has a huge influence on so social skills. But if you don't measure them, you do not see that. Okay. Uh, uh, Andreas, uh, if you had to give an, give advice to, and I'm just going to club all three so you can answer them separately, say a state minister, you know, somebody who is uh, uh, helping devise policy at a state level, but also to a parent and a teacher. So you could just choose or talk about each of them uh, based on your experience and specifically in India. Uh, what would you say? What would you give them as some tips that they could keep in mind? Well, the parent question is actually quite easy. When you look at the results from PISA, is that what matters most is that you take what your child does serious. You know, the simple fact whether parents ask their their children how was school. You know, this is not about you know three hours of time. It's not about having a degree. It's just showing that what you do in school matters to me. 
had a greater impact on learning outcomes and family income. Uh, so I think that's uh, you know really really central for parents. We have unfortunately in education increasingly moved towards a kind of commodified structure. You know we take students as consumers, parents as clients, and teachers as service providers. Parents no longer often see themselves as part of that ecosystem, as part of the learning system. So the moment you do, I think it matters hugely uh, for for the teacher. You know again you know. See, see, see school not just as an uh, environment where students learn, but see it as an environment where everyone learns, where everyone is in this together, where teachers are willing to, you know, uh, be open to new experiences, maybe also learn, you know, from and with their own mistakes, engage with their colleagues, you know, observe other teachers' classrooms, engage in collaborative professional development. You're going to see actually very rapidly improved outcomes. Now that's, uh, by the way, you also see greater job satisfaction. That was one of the biggest uh, surprises for us that actually uh, teachers' happiness with their work was uh, very much influenced by the work organization and the collaborative culture in their school. You know? And then as a, state, as a state minister, you know, I think, uh, think about, you know, m most state minister when they come in power, they say, I'm going to do a curriculum reform. I change, you know, put one more thing on top of the system. You know, that actually has often not that much of an effect because there are already so many other layers from your predecessors in, in the system. I think, you know, develop a deeper understanding of what happens at the front line, how you can support students learn that better, teachers teach better in schools to become uh, more effective, what you can do to raise the professional status of teachers. You know, realistically, state ministers won't have a lot more money. You know, this, this is something that will only change gradually. But how we deploy and utilize resources now to ensure that you know uh, teachers have an interesting career. Making teaching intellectually more attractive as a state minister is so much more powerful than just focusing on making teaching financially more attractive. And these are things that can actually uh, be done. And um, the moment I think you reward and recognize your profession, you'll create a better education system. And Andreas, I know that you're running out of time, so I will not, I will ask you one last question about COVID, right? So uh, it has disrupted everything, but it has particularly disrupted schooling. And I know that in the early months of COVID, you came out with a report about schooling disrupted, schooling rethought. But what are your learnings now? What are your thoughts now, both in terms of the impact, but also how countries have reacted to it? And overall, how do you think this will impact how we go ahead? Yeah, obviously, COVID has, you know, dramatically amplified the many inequalities in our education systems. Now, every little fracture in our schools have become a big crack. Now, I think that's really, I think, uh, what we see everywhere. But, uh, you know, the important thing is that we don't just build back better, but build forward differently, really. I think, uh, and I, what, what I hope most is that you're going to see many young people who go back to their teachers and say, well, you know, in this difficult moment, I really understood what learning is. I found that inspiration in myself. I had access to interesting learning resources. And uh, how we do our lessons differently, you know, where we uh, get more into the co-creation of, you know, innovative learning environments. I hope you're going to see many teachers who go back to the school leaders and say, you know, in this moment of crisis, I was not just a good instructor, but I also became a good coach, a good mentor, a good facilitator, a good evaluator, a good social worker, a good psychologist. And I really, you know, uh, you know, not only knew my subject and how different students learn that subject differently, but I really 
understood my students as individual learners in ways that I could never see when they were in front of me in the classroom. And I go, hope you're going to see many school leaders who go back to their statement as saying, you know, in this moment of crisis, you left us badly alone. You know, we were actually very isolated, but we figured things out. We took more ownership over, you know, how we configure space, time, money, uh, technology. Uh, I think, you know, we're going to take some of that responsibility forward to become, you know, a more uh, designed environment. So that's my hope, really, that we take those lessons from, from the pandemic and uh, look at education yeah. differently. No, uh, I would just end by saying thank you, Andres, not just for this talk, but for the work you're doing, because I think it's showing a new way of looking at things. And I think the world is recognizing it and uh, completely agree that, you know, we have to learn from each other, look to the next person. And uh, PISA is like really helping in that, along with the other work that uh, you are doing, the other studies. So thank you very much and uh, pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Rita. Very nice to share this time with you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, do share it with others who might like it. You should also listen to our episodes with Dr. Karthik Murlidharan and Dr. Land Pritchett on the role of research in education policy. Subscribe to EI Dialogues on your favorite podcast app to catch upcoming episodes and watch excerpts from these conversations on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash EI videos.